comes from the book of John, chapter 20. We'll be reading the second half of the chapter of this Easter day story. John 20, beginning in verse 19 and continuing through the end of the chapter, verse 31. I invite you to open a pew Bible or a device if you have one handy to follow along. I'll be reading from the New International Version and the words will also be on screen. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked in fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Lord, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, who was known as Didymus, which means the twin, Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I read a sermon this week by Pastor Scott Jose in which he goes into this passage and throughout the sermon he asks this repeated question of the story. Why didn't they go looking for him? Why didn't they go looking for him? You see, why did the disciples stay inside? The story begins on the evening of the Easter day. We, we began the morning last week with Mary going to the tomb and finding that it was empty. And she runs back to where the disciples are staying and she says, He's gone. They've taken his body. I don't know where they've put him. And two of the disciples come running with her to the tomb. And there they see that the body is gone and that the clothes are lying there. And they go away. They go home. They go back to where they were staying. And they went back to a locked room behind closed doors. But Mary stayed. Mary stayed by the tomb, and because she stayed, she met the risen Jesus, and he said to her, Mary, and then she goes out and becomes this witness of the good news. She becomes the first preacher of the gospel. She says, I have seen the Lord. She goes to the disciples and tells them what she has seen and what he said and who she met, and, and why didn't they go looking for him? She goes to the disciples and tells them everything she's seen and heard and and they shut the doors and they lock them because they 
are afraid. They're afraid of the religious leaders, says John, but, but there's no evidence that there was a roundup going on of anybody beyond Jesus at this time. There was, there was no persecution, no door-to-door search, no interrogation, no one was put in prison. The disciples are afraid, but afraid of what? And notice how they react to, in the story, when Mary tells them that the body goes missing, that the body's missing, they, they go running to the tomb, at least two of them do. But when she says, I have seen the Lord, they go nowhere. They do nothing. They stay locked inside. Why didn't they go looking for him? Maybe because they were afraid. Maybe because they're afraid of Jesus, some people even say. After all, these same disciples didn't handle the pressure of Jesus' crucifixion very well. When Jesus was arrested, most of them scattered and disappeared. At the cross, who was with Jesus? Not most of the disciples. No, it was the women who were there. Mary Magdalene and others. The disciples do not come off looking very good in the Gospel of John. And and that is, by the way, one reason that I think we can trust the story. Because they could have polished their story. They could have polished their image so that they came off looking better. But they didn't. But why didn't they go looking for him? Maybe they were afraid of what Jesus would say to them. Would he call them out for their denial and their disappearance, for their flaking off? Would he reject them as his true followers? Why didn't they go looking for him? Well, we don't know. But Jesus went looking for them. Jesus comes to them where they are, behind locked doors, because nothing can stop the risen Messiah. Not death and sin, and certainly not locks or doors. He's God, and he can do anything. He is victorious, and Jesus comes among them in in his first action in the story, according to one scholar, his first of three words and actions, Jesus gives them his presence. Just as he met Mary by the grave. Jesus' presence should help them recognize him and see who he is. It should enable them, like Mary, to go off and become witnesses, shouting, I have seen the Lord. And then he gives them a word to go with that. He says, peace be with you. He gives them his shalom, this deep abiding peace of God, this this peace that makes things right, that restores broken relationships and heals broken hearts. And then the second action Jesus takes among them is this. He, he shows them his hands and his side. You see, the, the risen Messiah still bears the, the marks of the cross on his body. He is risen indeed, and his resurrected body, glorious though it may be, still has scars. And by the way, this is an important idea. This is maybe a mind-blowing idea if you think about it. When we confess that Christ is risen and that he is ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God... We can't forget this image, that he, he bears the wounds on his hands and on his side. He is the risen Messiah, and his body bears the scars of suffering. Like we sang, I serve a risen Savior. This is the sort of Savior we serve, fully God and fully human. And when the disciples see Jesus' wounds, they respond with joy. That's one of the few indications we see in this story that they even understand what is going on. Jesus was crucified and now he is risen and his body bears the scars. He he lives. Christ Jesus lives today and that is a joyful thing to see. And then Jesus gives them a second word 
The, the same one as the first one. He says, peace be with you. But to that he adds a word of mission. He says, as the Father is sending me, so I send you. Because of what they've seen, because of what Jesus has given them, they must become witnesses, just like Mary. And then the third thing Jesus does is breathe on them. He, he breathes on them like the word who was before creation, by whom all things was made. The, this word who becomes flesh and dwells among them, he gives them an act of new creation. He breathes on them just like God breathed into this thing of clay and made it a living, breathing human being. Just like the Spirit breathed life into those dry bones that Ezekiel saw in that field, and just like the Spirit gives life today, Jesus comes among them in this mini Pentecost moment where he gives them the Spirit. And in the Gospel of John, this is how the Spirit comes to the disciples. The Spirit of God has already been moving among them in Jesus' words and actions all the way through his baptism and ministry and everything he's done. But now the Spirit comes. The Spirit breathes new life into these dry bones, these bones locked behind doors. And finally, the third word that Jesus gives them is this word of forgiveness and mission. He says, receive the Spirit. And if anyone forgives their sins, their sins are forgiven. But if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. These words might seem a little confusing to us at first. But remember who Jesus is saying them to. The the disciples, they were afraid of what Jesus might do to them for their denial and their disappearance. And here Jesus comes and sends them out with a word of forgiveness. He doesn't, he assumes that they are forgiven people. He doesn't need to tell them that. Of course they are forgiven. But that means that they need to live like they're forgiven people. They need to live out this mission of forgiveness to everybody. And as they proclaim this good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, people will believe and become forgiven. And of course, Jesus does not mean that they have the power to forgive people's sins, the the power to choose to forgive someone or not, the power to condemn them or to save them. No, that we know from Scripture belongs to God alone. All sin is ultimately against God, and God's job is to forgive. And any forgiveness that we can offer to one another comes because of what God has done first. No, here, Forgiveness is connected to witness. You see, they receive the Spirit. They they are sent out into the world to proclaim this good news of forgiveness to anyone who will hear it and receive it and live it. And that's how they forgive, by witnessing to the risen Lord. But why didn't they go looking for him? And why, having seen and heard the good news, why don't we go looking for him? Why don't we, like the disciples, go out and proclaim him? How do we respond to this good news of the resurrection? There's a poem by a a Christian author, Wendell Berry. He's a a farmer and a poet and a writer who's written a lot about small-town life and faith, who's written poems and nonfiction. And he's got a poem that gets at the question of resurrection life. And part of the poem says this. He says, My friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag and hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all that you cannot understand and praise ignorance for what man has not encountered he has not destroyed. Ask questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. 
Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant and that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have been rotted into mold and call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in those two inches of hummus that will build under the trees in every thousand years. And listen to the carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world and laugh because laughter is immeasurable. And be joyful though you have considered all the facts. And he ends with this. Practice resurrection. Practice resurrection. We, we so often forget that. We, to go out and look for Jesus. To go out and proclaim Jesus. To live like resurrected people who are filled with the Spirit and forgiven and sent out on a mission like the disciples. And if only the story ended here, we could shake the disciples' hands and pat them on the back and say, good job, well done. But a week later, the story continues. Because one of the twelve was not there. Thomas, uh, who we sometimes call Doubting Thomas, which means, by the way, that according to John, someone was there who you probably don't expect. Judas, the the one who betrayed Jesus, was probably still among the group of disciples there, receiving Jesus' peace and the Spirit's forgiving power. But it's not the end of the story, because Thomas wasn't there. Why didn't they go looking for Jesus? And why didn't they go looking for Thomas? Because Thomas was out and about. Thomas was not afraid like the other disciples. This same Thomas, after all, is the one who, when Jesus was at Lazarus' tomb, he wanted to go to Jerusalem to console Lazarus' family. And everyone said, don't do it. They're going to kill you in Jerusalem. But Thomas said to Jesus, let us go with him, that that we may die with him. Thomas wasn't afraid of dying with Jesus. And after Jesus died, Thomas was not behind the locked doors, afraid of what the religious leaders might do. Thomas, I think, though though the Bible doesn't say this, but I think Thomas was out looking for Jesus. Thomas, dear, doubting Thomas, he wanted evidence. He wanted proof. And the disciples tried Mary's line on him. They said, we have seen the Lord, but it didn't work. It didn't work for them and it didn't work for Thomas. He wanted to see Jesus' hands. He wanted to touch the nail marks and and put his hand in his side. And the disciples gave him no evidence that Jesus was written. Sure, they said something, but they didn't do anything. They didn't go looking for the risen Savior. Nothing they did or said showed that Jesus was risen. Thomas wanted to see. He wanted to recognize. He wanted to touch and know the risen Lord. So he goes looking for Jesus. But a week later, the disciples are still behind locked doors. Why didn't they go looking for Jesus? Were they still afraid? But but Jesus had given them his peace. He'd given them the spirit. He'd given them a mission, a job to do. Why didn't they go out and do it? It took Thomas to make that happen. See, Thomas was with them this time, this week after Easter. And Jesus comes in this third revelation of his presence after rising from the dead. And again, Jesus says to them, peace be with you. Jesus gives his peace that makes everything right. And then he speaks directly to Thomas. Again, Jesus knows what Thomas needs. And he says, put your finger here. Uh, See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe Jesus knows that Thomas needs evidence and he meets him right there. 
But curiously, John doesn't tell us that Thomas actually had to stick his hand in Jesus' side or touch the nails to believe. We we don't actually know that Thomas reached out and touched Jesus. We don't get to see him put his hand in Jesus' side. All we get are these words, these amazing words of witness that Thomas says, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. This brave disciple wanted some evidence of Jesus being risen from the dead. And he becomes the first person and the only person in the whole Gospel of John who recognizes Jesus for who he is. Fully God and fully human. Lord and Savior. The risen one. God. No one else. Not the disciples. Confesses that Jesus is God. But Thomas, dear Thomas, does. He gives witness to the risen Savior like no one else does. Why didn't they go looking for Jesus? Because Jesus comes looking for them. And the Gospel of John ends right about here. It ends on this high note with just a few stories in the next chapter as kind of a postlude or an epilogue. Jesus blesses Thomas in that moment and and those who believe without seeing and touching and hearing Jesus' words, which means us, by the way. We are the ones that John is talking about, those who believe without having seen. Uh, One preacher remembers hearing this story of Thomas over uh, at the end of a meal when he was a little kid. And when his dad finished reading the scripture, his mom said, Jesus means us. He's talking about us. We have never seen Jesus. We've never touched him like the disciples did, but he is our savior and we believe in him. Jesus is talking about us. And this this preacher was impressed by this, as a young child might be. He he thought, I'm in the Bible. Me, little Scotty of Ada, Michigan, is in the Bible. Uh, Cool. But years later in high school, as he he learned more and more and came across the passage again, he he thought, no way, that that part of the Bible is not written for me. I I know better than that. I'm not in the Bible. That's a, a childish way of thinking. But many years later, when he went to seminary, he learned more. He learned about how the Spirit inspires all of Scripture, how inspiration of Scripture extends not just to when it was written, but also to when we hear it. How the Spirit of God is alive and vibrant and sharper than a two-edged sword and cutting clean to the bone to those who read the Word. He began to understand that the living God can and does meet his people through his word and that God's been doing that for countless of millions of people for 2,000 years. And that's why the Gospel of John ends with this line. These things are written that you may believe. It's the theme of the whole Gospel. These things are written that you may believe. And the Holy Spirit is addressing every one of us, each one of us, Every reader and hearer of this gospel, you and me, all of us, each of us are in the Bible. This is our story. This is my story. This is your story. These things are written that we may believe and that we may have full, eternal kingdom life in his name, that we may practice resurrection, that we go looking for Jesus and Jesus finds us. And like Thomas, we proclaim, my Lord and my God, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, O risen Savior Jesus Christ, we praise you and thank you for your word, for how you reveal yourself to us by the Spirit. And we, your followers, like the disciples, 
might meet you and know you and, and go looking for you and see you. And we confess that we haven't been the best at that sometimes, that sometimes we'd rather stay behind our locked doors, keep them shut, keep the world out. But you come in and meet us there. And you send us out with your spirit, your spirit to give witness and to bring your forgiveness to the world, your spirit of grace. So meet us where we are, each one of us, whether we're like the disciples or Thomas, whether we're like Mary or anybody else, that that your spirit may give us what we need to know you, to love you, and to give witness to what we have seen, to call you my Lord and my God. We pray this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we respond to the word, I invite you to rise in body or in spirit and sing, Alleluia, Alleluia, give thanks to the risen Lord.